Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on June 20th, Lord's Day Service. Words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Now some of you will notice that we are preaching a sermon about the character of godly women on Father's Day. There's no need to read anything into that. We've had to reschedule this sermon series on the household several times because of recent guest preachers. And so it just worked out this way, and we weren't going to reschedule it a third time. And so here we are. Welcome to Trinity Reformed Church, Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be revived. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that you are the great Father of lights, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Your word is a gift, and to it we submit ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When the modern person considers the question, who am I? They make a great mistake when they answer that question in terms of, personality. David Wells, in his book, Losing Our Virtue, talks about how in modern times we have replaced character with personality. In other words, the fundamental category of thinking about personhood used to be moral character, but now it's personality. And the problem with defining human beings in terms of personality is that it allows us to conceive of ourselves apart from an external moral standard. In the last 100 years, we've psychologized personhood. We've psychologized the human being in terms of personality, by which is meant the involuntary pattern. Notice that, the involuntary pattern of mental, emotional, and social traits. And so what it means is that claiming you have a certain personality because it's an involuntary thing, claiming you have a certain personality is an excuse that allows you to escape any sort of moral standard or moral judgment. One of the reasons modern people are obsessed with personality profiles is that people want to consider themselves apart from external moral standards. And this is the great coup of the psychotherapeutic revolution, that it substitutes out moral categories to define personhood and brings in personality. It substitutes out moral categories in favor of psychology. And so it redefines human beings, and it allows us to conceive of ourselves apart from an external moral standard. So think about it. There's nothing right or wrong 
about being an ENFJ on the Myers-Briggs personality profile. There's nothing right or wrong about being type A or type B according to that personality profile. And so when you conceive of yourselves with those definitions, you're describing yourself apart from any sort of external moral standard. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, because today we're talking about the character of the godly woman. But before we can examine what Scripture says about it, we have to clear the ground. Today, people are trained to cultivate personality. A word, by the way, which was almost unknown prior to the 20th century. So today, people are trained to cultivate personality rather than character. Look, for example, at how letters of reference have changed. Today, letters of reference describe people in terms of personality. And we say this person is fascinating, stunning, and attractive. This person is magnetic, glowing, effervescent, forceful, creative. But letters of reference used to describe human beings in terms of moral character, describing someone's sense of duty, or loyalty, or work ethic, or honor, or reputation, or morals, or manners, or integrity. And so there's a change that's happened, where we used to think about people in terms of character, in terms of moral standards, but now we think about people in terms of their personality. Well, what does this change mean? Well, it means that prior to the psychotherapeutic revolution, the self was understood in terms of character and virtue, which means that character and virtue was something to be trained. Virtue was something to be learned and practiced in accordance with a higher standard. And we Christians would say that higher standard is God and His Word. But after the psychotherapeutic revolution, attention shifted from moral virtues, which need to be cultivated, to the self-image, which needs to be fashioned. And so it was a change from self-sacrifice to self-realization. And ever since, it's become important to find oneself. It's become important to stand out in the crowd, to be unique, to act, dress, and speak in a way that showcases your personality. And so, the point as we now transition to our biblical text, the point is to clear the ground of the modern obsession with personality so that we can operate freely within the categories that Scripture provides. In other words, to talk about a godly woman is not really to talk about her personality. It's to talk about her character. Now, I've titled this sermon, The Noonday Woman. In light of the promise of Psalm 91.6, where we read that God will deliver you from the destruction that lays waste at noonday. You see, there's a certain destruction that lays waste at noonday for all of us. Because we wake up, we do the activities of the day, the activities of the morning with fresh energy, and then at some point, midday, our physical energy starts to go down. We start to be fatigued. Destruction lays waste at noonday. Psalm 91.6 speaks of the danger of the spiritual apathy that often lays waste at midday. It speaks of the noonday demon, where the whispering voice of spiritual sloth causes despair that dulls the pursuit of godliness, that dulls the pursuit of righteous living. But Titus chapter 2, verses 3-5 through five, spits right in the face of the noonday demon. 
because it instructs women on what they are to do and be. And Paul's expectation is that the gospel of Jesus Christ produces godliness in everyday life. And so, as we look at Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, what are Christian women to do and be? Well, look with me at the beginning of verse 3. It says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Now, first, we have to notice, who is this instruction given to? Well, this instruction is directed towards older women. Now, I've got, a lot of speak on a, I've got to speak on a lot of sensitive subjects this morning. And this is the most dangerous subject of them all. What is the definition of an older woman? What's he going to say? Everybody leans in. Well, in Philo's writings, Philo, the Jewish philosopher that lived about the time, a little before when the New Testament was written, he used this exact same expression in his writings. And when he used the expression older women, he explicitly defined it as women who were over 60 years of age. Now, that doesn't mean that older women, when Paul uses it here, means that. He doesn't attach an age to it like Philo does. And when you look at how he uses this expression in the context of this passage, it seems that he's not really referring to a specific age like Philo was, but rather he's referring to the mature woman. And so he says older women, that is mature women, be reverent in behavior. Be reverent in behavior. That word reverent may have a narrower meaning than you think because the expression was originally used in the context of behavior at the temple. And so it's talking about a religious context. It means to be devoted to the proper expression of your faith. It refers to a type of behavior that is fitting for women who claim to be godly. And so that means, women of Trinity Reformed Church, your conduct should be with devotion towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Women, you should take seriously the fact that you belong to God Almighty. Women, your behavior and your demeanor should reflect a devout follower of Jesus Christ. So he says, Older women, be reverent in behavior and not slanderers. You know, the devil's referred to as the slanderer. We see this in 1 Timothy 3.6 and 2 Timothy 2.26. And so, women, you are not to be slanderers. In other words, women, you are not to be one who engages in speaking words that are false. Women, you are not to be one who engages in speaking words that may or may not be true. If it may or may not be true, then we probably ought not say it. Women, you are not to engage in malicious gossip. And so older women are to be, that is, mature women, or if you strive to be a mature woman, you are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, and not slaves to much wine. Now that's pretty straightforward, right? Wine, alcoholic drink, is not to enslave you. But the idea is much broader than that because the Apostle Paul operates with this category of enslavement. 
throughout his writings. And you see this explicitly in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, when he basically announces that you are all slaves, and you're all always going to be slaves, he says. He says you're either a slave to sin or a slave to the righteousness of Christ. Those are the two options. You're all always going to be a slave. You're a slave to what you obey. And so you either obey sin or you obey Christ. Either way, you're a slave. And so, he says here, back in Titus chapter 2, you are not to be slaves to much wine, but the idea is much broader than just wine. The idea in Paul's categories of enslavement is that you ought not to be enslaved to anything but the righteousness of Christ. And so whether that be wine or prescription drugs or video games or caffeine or a TV show or Facebooking, it doesn't matter what it is, we are not to be enslaved to anything but Christ and Christ alone. And so mature women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. It then says in verse 3, they are to teach what is good. So older women, mature women, are to teach what is good. They are to be teachers of good things, he says. Okay, well, what specifically are they to be teachers of? What are the good things that mature women are to be teachers of? Well, we'll answer that question in a moment. But first, let us focus on the sense in which women are called to be teachers. Notice, it says in verse 3, mature women are to teach what is good. And so women, you are to be teachers. We have it in Scripture right here. Women, you, mature women, you are to be teachers. Now, as we look at the context of the church, we have to recognize that there are different kinds of teachers in the church. And so, three points. First, we know that the office of elder is reserved for a man because in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, it says that the elder is to be the husband of but one wife. We also know that the office of elder is responsible for the official teaching and preaching that takes place within the church. We see this first in the patterns of the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament, and then explicitly in passages in the New Testament like Titus 1.9. And then we also know from a passage like 1 Timothy 2.12 that women are not to teach or have authority over a man. And yet when we come to Titus 2, verse Three, we see that mature women are to teach good things. They are to be teachers. And so, just as all mothers are teachers of their children, so too mature women should be teachers of younger women. And maybe you're thinking, well, I strive to be a mature woman one day, but I don't want to be a teacher and, and, and I don't have the gift of teaching, and so this doesn't count for me. Well, all mothers don't necessarily possess the gift of teaching either. And yet they teach their children daily. And in that sense, mature women are to teach what is good to the younger women. And this best occurs during informal one-on-one -on -one moments. And so we encourage you women who are new to the faith, we encourage you women who are younger in the faith to reach out to those women in the congregation who are more mature than you. God has richly blessed Trinity Reformed Church with many mature women. 
And so, women who are new to the faith, I encourage you, seek them out. Get together with them. Ask them questions. But don't just ask them questions. Ask them specific questions and seek their advice. Learn from them. And be direct about it. Don't beat around the bush. Go to them and say, I want to learn from you. Let's spend some time together. Can I come over to your house? I assure you that the mature women in this congregation will love it if you do that, and they will love spending time with you. And older women, mature women, likewise, you need to be seeking out relationships with the younger women for this purpose. And you have to realize that the more organically and naturally this happens in church life, the more effective it will be. Sure, we can come along and we can set up a program structure of mentorship. And we could get the list of all the women, and we could say, all right, this one here, yeah, I think she's pretty mature. We'll, we'll pair her up with this one here. And then we could submit it to you and say, all right, here's what you need to do. We could do that. But the more structured it becomes in that top-down way, the less effective it becomes. And so we encourage you to make this happen organically within the life of the church. And so... Mature women are to be teachers of good things to the younger women. So, what good things, specifically, are they to be teachers of? Well, that's what verse 4 is designed to answer. Look at it with me. And so, train the young women to love their husbands and children. And so, follow the logic of the Apostle Paul. Mature women are to teach younger women good things. Well, what is a good thing in the mind of the Apostle Paul? Well, it is to love their husbands and children. And notice it says in verse 4 that women are to be trained to love their husbands and children. And I imagine there would be some who look at what Paul says there in verse 4 and they think that's silly. And they think, you know, mothers and wives don't have to be trained to love their family, especially their children. They might say, you know, that's an instinctive quality. And so it doesn't have to be trained. Paul's wrong there. It doesn't have to be trained. A mother instinctively loves her child. And I want to gently say to you that that is ignorance. Look across the social landscape and what do you see? Which of these two words best describes the typical person? Selfless or selfish? When you look inside the sin nature... Which of these two words best describes what comes out of the sin nature? Selfless or selfish? It cannot be taken for granted that women will instinctively love their families. Especially when you just look out and you see families are being torn apart. There are 150 million orphans in the world today. Not to mention the millions of abortions that happen every year. And that's why Paul understands that this is something that has to be, according to verse 4, trained. It's not instinctive. You can't assume it. It has to be, in the, in the logic of the Apostle Paul, it has to be trained. The most basic characteristic of the sin nature is selfishness, not selflessness. And so, that's why Paul says younger women are to be trained to love their husbands and children. You know, when we marry, the choice is voluntary. But the duties that accompany marriage are not a matter of choice. 
the direct responsibilities are made to us from God, and we are made for them. And that has to be trained. And so, follow the logic of the Apostle Paul. It says, older women, that is mature women, are to teach younger women good things. What good things? To love their families. So then how are women to love their families? How are women to be trained to love their husbands and children? Well, that's what verse 5 is designed to answer. And in verse 5, the Apostle Paul gives us five specific ways that women are to be trained to love their families. So it says in verse 5, train the young women to first be self-controlled, second, pure, third, working at home, fourth, kind, and fifth, submissive to their own husbands. These are the five ways that women are to be trained to love their families. So let's look at this, each one. First, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. The Greek word sophron here also means discreet. Some of the translations translate it as discreet. And so this means, women, you are to be self-controlled. You are to be discreet, which means you are to be trained to be sensible and moderate in your behavior. And so to be self-controlled is to avoid extremes of behavior. To be discreet is to avoid extremes of expression. And so to be self-controlled is to live within reasonable limits. The next way women are to be trained to love their families is to be pure. And so this means women are to be trained to be without moral blemishes. So we have to teach what moral purity is according to God's definition. And realize that the training we get from Netflix or Facebook or whatever is not God's definition. And so we need to be trained according to God's word what moral purity is. And, and this term pure also hints at the sexual constraint aspects of self-control. The third way women are to be trained to love their families, it says in verse 5, is to be working at home. This means younger women are to be trained to be homemakers. So a homemaker is one who works at home, is it one who takes care of the home. Now you have to also realize though that the opposite of working at home is not working at a job outside the home. The opposite of working at home is given to us in 1 Timothy 5.13 when Paul talks about these young women who are going about from house to house as idlers, gossips, and busybodies. And so in the thinking of the Apostle Paul, the opposite of working at home is going about from house to house as an idler, a gossip, in a busy body. And so working at home doesn't require a woman to work only at home. We know this also because Proverbs 31 gives examples of women working outside the home. When it's saying women are to be working at home, it's saying that she has duties at home. Woman has duties at home, and those duties are primary. Not necessarily exclusive, but they are primary. And that means for some women, that duty will become exclusive. Because some women, when they go work outside the home, get so distracted with that, that that becomes primary. And they therefore neglect their duties at home. But there are some women that doesn't happen to, of course. And so what we're seeing here is that working at home is to be the primary duty. 
And so when we look at passages like this, we have to be careful not to impose modern debates about women roles on our interpretation of this verse. Look at the Proverbs 31 woman. As David Francis told me this week in his summary of her, she's wheeling and dealing. It's a great description of the Proverbs 31 woman. She's wheeling and dealing. She's working hard outside the home. But notice the Proverbs 31 woman is not seeking her identity outside the home. She's not turning that job into, to, into the primary thing in her life. She's not seeking her fulfillment outside the home and doing it in resentment of male privilege. The godly woman doesn't resent being led by a godly man. And so Paul here in verse 5, Titus 2, verse 5, ranks a wife's obligation to care for her husband and children over her own personal benefit. She ranks that obligation over her own personal fulfillment. And that really shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us. After all, Jesus defined love as laying down your life for your friends. And so the Christian's job is not to demand to be loved. The Christian's job is to love. Next, how are women to be trained to love their families? It says in verse 5, be kind. Be kind. Notice this character trait is sandwiched between working at home and be submissive to their own husbands. And the reason I point that out is because we all know the phenomenon where we go outside the home and we're really nice to everyone out there and we use a lot of energy being nice to everyone outside the home and then we come home and we're rude to our family. We all know that phenomenon. And I want you to notice that when it says here, be kind, we're talking about the context of the household. It's not be kind to everyone else and then you have a blank check to be rude to everyone at home. No, this is saying very specifically be kind to those in your household. Be kind to your family. Kind is the Greek word agathos, and it means good and useful. So to be kind to someone is to do good things for them. To be kind to someone is to do useful things for them. And then the fifth way that women are to be trained to love their families is to be submissive to their own Husbands. Now, this is a, a repeated instruction in Paul's writings. We see it in Colossians 3.18. We see it in Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 23. I want you to notice just a couple of things here as we start to wind down. Notice it says, be submissive to their own husbands. So the point in Titus chapter 2, verse 5 at least, is not the submission of, of one gender to another. It's talking about a wife to a husband. And then also notice, in the broader context, verses 3 through 5, it says, older women train the younger women to be submissive to their own husbands. Paul does not instruct husbands to demand submission. He instructs wives to give it. He instructs older women to train young women in this matter. But he does not instruct husbands to go around demanding submission. And that is a significant distinction. The husband's job is not to demand submission. That's the job of older women to train the younger women. The husband's job is to love as Christ as Christ loved the church. So it says, wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. And we have to be clear, the husband is not permitted to have a me dictator, you doormat 
mentality. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. That does not give the husband the right to be unfair or selfish or abusive. Let us be crystal clear. When Scripture says that wives are to be submissive to their own husbands, that does not permit a husband to be verbally or physically abusive to his wife. Rather, as we see in Ephesians 5.25, a husband is to love his wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So it says wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. The Greek term for submit is hapatasso, and it simply means to arrange under. And so that means in God's wisdom, there is a certain arrangement in the house. It means that a wife is to fully use her intelligence, her talents, and her gifts for the purpose of supporting her husband in his role as the spiritual leader, in his role as the head of the household. The household is arranged under the headship of the husband. And so the family is arranged under the husband's headship. And what that means is that the husband bears the burden for difficult decisions. The husband is the one owning mistakes and sins in his home. And as, as Douglas Wilson has taught us, authority flows to those who take responsibility. And so for a wife to submit to the divine arrangement of the household is for her to help her husband in his duty to be the head of the household. And so what we see in this passage, in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, is we see what Scripture says about what women are to do and be. We see the type of character Christian women are called to develop. And you might look at this and you might think, okay, why is Paul telling us this? Why is Paul giving women this instruction? Why are they to develop this type of character? And that's answered at the end of verse 5 when he says that the word of God may not be revived. And so what that means is, is that we should arrange our households in such a way, under the authority of God's word. We should live in such a way. Kids, you should honor your parents in such a way. Husbands, you should love your wives in such a way. Wives, you should treat your husbands in such a way that the pagan women in your neighborhood look at your home and say, I would give anything to have a husband that treats me like he treats his wife. Live in such a way in your household under the arrangement of God that the pagan kids in your neighborhood look at your house and say, I would give anything to have a family so full of love and joy like that family. Live in such a way that the pagan men in your neighborhood look at your household and say, I would give anything to have a wife treat me like that. That's what this means. We arrange the household in this way. Paul is giving us these instructions about the character of Christian women so that the word of God may not be reviled. Because then, when they investigate why your house is different, it all traces back to the love of Jesus Christ, who is the head of us all, who paid the penalty for our sin, who declared us righteous by grace through faith, and adopted us into His family. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, You and You alone give life, purity, and grace. Everything in us is corrupt and we decay. But in your Son, just as the manna was preserved, we are preserved. 
We are made clean and holy in your holiness and purity. And it is in the power of Christ crucified and resurrected that we receive the teaching of your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh.